Uh, if you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, starting this morning. And so in those black hardcover Bibles, uh, page 553 uh, is where the book of Ecclesiastes starts. Uh, if you're using another Bible that's not like a digital version where you can just push the, the title Ecclesiastes, uh, right about the middle is Psalms, and just after that is Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's right, right close to the middle, just, just after the middle of your, of your Bible. You heard Bob, as he led us in liturgy this morning, reference this, uh, but it's really true. Our lives, our existence, hinges on a few critical but never convenient questions. What are we doing here? Is there meaning and purpose to life? Where is all of this activity that we do any given day? Where is it all going? Is it going anywhere? And if it is going somewhere, is it actually getting there? The vast majority of our, of our lives uh, is not spent thinking about and answering this question or these questions. It's spent instead living busily either in the light of or in spite of our answers to those questions. And busyness is perhaps the most common reason that we would offer as to why we don't engage in considering those questions more often. But I think if we're honest, the, the deeper and the more true reason that we don't engage in these questions is often because of how unsettling and how uncomfortable it is to do so. A French scientist and mathematician uh, and theologian by the name Blaise Pascal once wrote, Since men are unable to cure death, misery, and ignorance, they imagine they can find happiness by not thinking about such things. And then Peter Barnes, uh, an Australian pastor, writes, People cannot bear to think too deeply about the human condition, and they resent being confronted with it. That is why the worst punishment of all is solitary confinement. An hour by ourselves in our own room is more than most of us can bear. Enter Ecclesiastes, a book of Old Testament wisdom literature that forces the issue. A book that takes an uncomfortably honest look at the realities of life and faith. A book that really will throw a wrench in the gears of everyday life and norms and routines for you and I. And throughout the history of the church, throughout even earlier than the church even was a thing, the people of God, this book has proven to be both a really challenging book, a formidable challenge, as well as a surprising encouragement. Uh, if you've read and become familiar with and, and appreciate the book of Proverbs, for example, you will likely or at least be prone to struggle with the book of Ecclesiastes. Because where in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom, as she's personified, proposes these fairly simple, uh, straightforward norms and patterns for life, Ecclesiastes uses provocative language, uh, uses apparent contradictions to grapple with the exceptions to those norms. And so if, on the other hand, uh, you find yourself to be more of a cynic by nature, you might love this book. You might love this book too much. Uh, you might love watching Lady Wisdom and surface-level Christianity squirm in its seat. As we endeavor to make our way through Ecclesiastes in the coming months, let me share a couple pastoral hopes just on the front end uh, of what I, what your elders, what your other leaders of this church long to see God do through our time in this book. For those of you uh, who are Christians, 
for you who look to Jesus for your salvation, who pursue uh, faithfulness in following him, uh, my prayer for you is that this book would lead you to greater integrity, uh, greater consistency, and greater depth in that pursuit. If God is present, if God is powerful, what difference does that really make in our lives? Uh, Why do we do the things that we do? Do we do the things that we do because we're supposed to? Do we do them because that's the way we've always done it? Or do we actually live in a way that's consistent with the reality of God? Derek Kidner, uh, whose commentary we are using in our Bible studies for Ecclesiastes this fall, he writes this, if one believes in God at all, the implications deserve to be followed right through. So how much do we actually follow the implications? In these coming weeks, enter into the discomfort of this book and challenge your assumptions. Challenge your assumptions. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Some of us have been around the church and in Christian subculture for a long time. And while there's so much to be grateful for in keeping that company, There's also the lurking danger that what we follow is not the God who is there, but forms of godliness that lack power instead. Peter Barnes again writes, if blatant secular atheism is an example of vanity, this word, this key word that we'll see a lot in Ecclesiastes, if blatant secular atheism is an example of vanity, so too is trite religiosity. So it's neither a virtue nor integral for us as Christians to espouse a happy-go-lucky, never-bothered, always-smiling, quote-unquote, faith. At best, that is going to be an incredibly shallow experience, a limited experience of life before the face of God. And at worst, it's going to be a complete facade. A complete facade. A Stepford Wives, Pleasantville, faux existence. And one that is so out of touch with reality that only other people who are immersed in the same facade will want anything to do with it. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates will see through that. The people you're sitting next to in the pews or across from you in the pews will see through that. And what our world needs is not this, but people of God who have been vexed who have been pressed by life under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, life in this fallen, hard, miserable world, who then trust in God nonetheless. That's what the world really needs. So may Ecclesiastes form us into these kinds of people, and when the patterns, when the norms of our own lives break down and fall apart, may we find faith-forming solidarity in the book's honest wrestlings. Now, for you who aren't Christians, for you who are perhaps exploring and considering it what it is you believe, in my humble opinion, you could not have picked a better moment or a better text to bring your exploration. Ecclesiastes, as we'll see, is the recounting of a quest, of the search that really each of us, at some point in our lives or throughout our entire lives, must embark on to seek out what is actually true and to seek out what that truth means for our lives. And at the end of the day, Ecclesiastes is one of the best apologetics for faith in God that we have. But as you will see, it is a long road there. It's a long journey there. Charles Bridges, a a British theologian and preacher a century and a half ago, wrote about one who, who embarks on this quest. 
all is dark with him, till he shall see that all is vanity, and himself the chiefest of all vanities. This is the Lord's training, the discipline of his school, the ordinary method of his grace. You must know the depth of your ruin, the bankruptcy of your nature. You must learn to trample upon the petty objects of this world, to set in view its meanness, its vanity, its nothingness. Thus, the Lord will bring you to your home, wearied and unsuccessful, wearied with unsuccessful efforts to seek in yourself or in the world what is only to be found in him. Such has been the experience of thousands of men and women and children in reading the words of Ecclesiastes in the generations gone by. May that be your experience for those of you who are not Christians at this point as you walk through this book. And for all of us, uh, if we really give ourselves to this, if we really immerse ourselves in Ecclesiastes, it will be impossible for us to, to not find ourselves provoked and troubled. But I would put this to you this morning as we begin this study. If our faith is to be sincere, if it is to be rooted, if it is to stand up under the weight of real life and trial and suffering and not to wither as quickly as it sprouted up, then troubled it must be. Troubled it must be. So may God trouble us that he might comfort us. May God unsettle you that he might truly settle you upon the foundation of himself. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'll read the first chapter through verse 18. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted." I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. 
Lord, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might truly hear your word and live with integrity, live with consistency to it. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. The first chapter of Ecclesiastes begins with a conclusion and it ends with an introduction. So we'll spend the rest of our time walking through this first chapter. So first, the conclusion. All is vanity. All is vanity. It begins in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The title of this book, Ecclesiastes, uh, is drawn from the word that means assembly or gathering. The Hebrew rendition of this word is the word that's translated preacher there in verse 1. Koheleth is the word. Literally, it means one who speaks to an assembly. So often in English, the translation has become preacher, one who speaks to an assembly. Uh, Much ink has been spilled about who this is. Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel, uh, has long been identified as the likeliest candidate, and you'll hear why as we walk through this book. When we read the authors about the author's author's wisdom uh, and his wealth, it's hard to find another person that fits the description. At the same time, uh, this designation, son of David, was used and can be used of any descendant of King David. And when the author describes some of the setting, some of the rampant injustice that exists and the foolishness that is playing out in the era around him, that doesn't seem to line up with what we know characterizes most or all of Solomon's reign while he was king in Jerusalem. Solomon's other words in Scripture also, we have some of them in other books like the Song of Solomon and in the Psalms. Uh, They're not anonymous like this book is. So at the end of the day, Uh, it's best to conclude that there are some scholars, much smarter than I, who are absolutely convinced this is Solomon, and there are other scholars, also much smarter than I, that are absolutely convinced this is not Solomon, but another descendant of David, another king in that line. Uh, During the series, I'll refer to this author as either the preacher, uh, the preacher king, or this title that they give him in verse 1, Koheleth. Whoever he is, here's what we see right away. He's candid, and he's a critic. He's candid and he's critical. And so he gets right to the point and states his conclusion up front. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word uh, vanity, it's going to show up nearly 40 times in Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew word is havel, havel. And it literally means vapor or fog or smoke. Hence the title uh, of our series. But as we'll see, This conclusion that all is vanity, that is not this author's ultimate conclusion. It's his proximate conclusion. It's his conclusion to this quest, to the search for meaning, apart from the presence and the reality of God. And so this book is going to end when we get all the way to chapter 12 on a different note. So it's not that life is truly meaningless. It's that life is meaningless apart from the reality of God. And this refrain, vanity of vanities, what it's doing is it's pointing to to the realities of life under the sun, as he puts it, and acknowledging that the meaning and the purpose of our lives, the meaning and the purpose of the events of our lives is fleeting. And we might think for a little while it's solid and we can understand what's going on and how it's playing out around us and we can grab a hold of it. But like smoke, it looks solid. When we reach out to grab it, it slips right through our fingers. Are any of you familiar with successories? Successories? Um, 
decade or more ago, it became popular for companies to hang these motivational posters uh, around their office, around their workplace, uh, inspiring stock photos with phrases like teamwork and synergy, uh, and then like a, an inspirational quote or saying that was put underneath that. Anybody want to admit to uh, having bought these before in their lives? Safe space. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, there's actually a lot of truth to, to what we find in successors. There's a lot of truth to the importance of collaboration and how we can accomplish things effectively and efficiently. Uh, as the popularity of these exploded, and they still exist today, uh, it didn't take too long for someone to create what's called demotivational posters. Not all heroes wear capes. And this is a personal hero of mine. Uh, I think these are fantastic. One of my favorite ones, and I thought about actually putting it up on the screen, but I wasn't sure about the copyright issues and all that stuff, so I'll just describe it to you. It's a picture of a ship that is sinking. It's half submerged, and it just says, mistakes. And then underneath it says, it might be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> Demotivational posters. The, the analogy is not perfect, okay? It breaks down. But it occurred to me this week, many of the Proverbs are like successories. And Ecclesiastes, much of the words of Ecclesiastes are like demotivational posters. And so stating this conclusion up front, verses 3 through 11 are essentially three of Koholeth's demotivational posters. And I made them for you. So let's look at them. First up, if you can put that on the slide there, Justin. Progress progress. Verses 5 through 7. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, they flow again. So we think that all of our busyness, all of our efforts are moving the world forward. But Koholeth says progress is an illusion. Progress is an illusion. Instead, our existence, all this toil at which we toil under the sun, it's a treadmill. It's a treadmill. It's a flurry of activity. Endless repetition of seasons and cycles that ultimately goes nowhere. His second one is about innovation. Innovation. Verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Innovation, invention, novelty, these are myths, says Koholeth. In our day, we immediately would argue, and I'm sure some of you have thought of it already in like the millisecond that I put this up on the screen, what about the internet? What about science and technology? Charles Bridges comments about the real essence of what Koholeth is saying here, though. He says this, Look again at man in all his pleasures, pursuits, and changes of life. His intellect may be gratified, his appetite for novelty supplied in the multitude of new openings of science, but no new springs of vital happiness are open to him. He is as far as ever from true rest. He is as far as ever from true rest. So, no progress no innovation. What about making the world a better place? Uh, what about handing our children and our grandchildren a better world than we inherited? I mean, Michael Jackson sang about it at the Super Bowl 25 years ago, heal the world, make it a better place for you and for me and the entire human race, right? 
Save it for our children. That's his song. Surely legacy gives meaning and purpose to life. The third one, the final demotivational poster, legacy. A generation goes, a generation comes, the earth remains forever. And then down in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Legacy is a vapor. Kohala says, you're going to die, and within a few short years, no one is going to remember you or the contribution you made to the world. Most of us will live and will die in complete obscurity. Uh, we'll perhaps be remembered if we're blessed in this way by children, by grandchildren, and after that, we'll be a name and we'll be some numbers on a gravestone somewhere. Progress is an illusion. Innovation is a myth. Legacy is a vapor. Do you see why the Christian greeting card industry avoids Ecclesiastes? <laughs> and, and I hope that you're a little bit unsettled. Are you unsettled yet? And if you are, it's precisely where Koholeth wants you to be at the beginning of this book. Because now, unsettled like this, you are ready to step into and to vicariously experience the journey that led him to this conclusion. So the first chapter begins with these conclusions, and it ends with his introduction. So here's what we'll find in the coming weeks and the coming chapters of Ecclesiastes. These conclusions are not ivory tower theoretical musings. Uh, these conclusions uh, have been arrived at through Koholeth's own experience. And at the end of chapter one, he's introducing his search. He's introducing his quest that led him to conclude the vanity of everything. If I were to hand you this morning a sheet of paper uh, with only verses two through 11 printed on them, or if I were just to show you, for example, like those three demotivational posters with no explanation and no context, you would likely be thinking to yourself, what kind of poor person is this? Like, sad existence that this is. What kind of underprivileged, oppressed existence must this person have lived to arrive at such a cynical and deflated view of the world? If only he had more opportunities. If only he had a better education. If only more exposure to what life and the world has to offer. Surely he could have been spared. Surely he could have been rescued from such a pessimistic outlook. And then we read verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And we read verse 16. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So what kind of person concludes this? As it turns out, it's a person whose existence is characterized by unrivaled, unimaginable wealth, wisdom, and power. It's a quest unconstrained by the typical obstacles that most of us face. Most of us don't have enough free time to fully explore the answers to these questions of life. But this preacher king does. Most of us don't have enough money to give full reign to all of our desires and whatever we want, we now have. But this preacher king does. Most of us don't have the people and the resources at our disposal to try out all of the options and all of the alternatives to find meaning in life, but that's exactly what this preacher king has done. He tries wisdom, he tries pleasure, he tries hard work, he tries wealth, honor, reputation, among other things. He begins his search with wisdom 
And that shows up here in, in chapter 1 and then cont- continues on into chapter 2. So we'll look at that specifically next week. But for today, I just want you to recognize this. This is as experiential a conclusion as has ever been reached. This is as experiential a conclusion as has ever been reached. It's the kind of quest that us quote-unquote normal folks envy. The kind that we often speculate would, if we had the means and ability to embark upon, surely would bring the satisfaction that at times or all the times feels so fleeting in our daily lives. But whether it's the ancient experience of Koholeth or the modern-day experience of the wealthy and famous in our day, this is the story that keeps getting told among generations of humanity. Athletes and actors and musicians and CEOs, they keep saying the same thing. They talk about how miserable they are. They talk about reaching the top of the ladder only to discover that the ladder's been leaning against the wrong building the entire time. They reach the top, they reach the pinnacle of whatever their field is, and then they say, is, is this it? Surely there's more than this. Is this all that's there? And even though this is the miserable chorus of those who've gone before us, we don't believe it. We don't believe it. We instead think that freed from our current constraints, our quest would lead us to a different conclusion. But hear this this morning. At the end of the day, that is on our part either blatant arrogance or blatant stupidity. Blatant arrogance or blatant stupidity. We either think that we're special and somehow better than everyone else who's tried this out before, or we just flat out refuse to learn from the sum total of human experience. And so the offer is held out to you at the beginning of this book. Will you hear and believe the words of this preacher king? Will you allow his experience to be your vicarious experience? Will his quest compel sincere contemplation about your own life? Koholeth is going to explore the the boundaries and the margins of existence. And here's what you'll read. His words in, in this book is more honest than most 21st century American Christians are willing to be. Much more honest than most of us 21st century American Christianity are willing to be. I mean, look at who we've become. We prefer Joel Osteen to Job. We'd rather keep our routines. We we would rather drive to work and sit in front of a screen and then drive home and sit in front of another screen and do that on endless loop. We'd rather stay busy Uh, frantically running on this treadmill without wrestling with the hard questions about progress and innovation and legacy. These are incredibly inconvenient, incredibly unwelcome questions, and that's exactly why they're so essential. Will you ask them? Will you take that risk? Because if you will, you will begin to perceive the real difference between a view of the world without God and a view of the world with God at the center. Those two sets of lenses are so diametrically opposed, it's crazy that they could ever be conflated. But conflated, they are. And much of what passes for Christianity in our time and in our place is in reality just a God bumper sticker slapped on materialistic moralism 
or as a sociologist named Christian Smith so acutely coined the phrase, moral therapeutic deism. Just live your life as a good person. In other words, let God help. Sprinkle in a few cliches. Sprinkle in a few pleasantries. A few out-of-context Bible verses, like doing all things through Christ who strengthens you and God having a plan to prosper you in the future. And take that completely out of context and just apply it to you. This is not a God-centered view of the world. This is attempting to stave off our fear of meaninglessness by using God as an add-on. And some of us aren't even honest enough to wrestle with the difference between those two things. A truly God-centered view of the world means that God isn't a bumper sticker. God isn't a paint job. He's the engine. He's the source from which everything flows. And so that even when the paint is rusted, even when the bumper falls off, if God is really there, if he is present, if he is powerful, if he is not distant or calloused or inconsequential, then when we come face to face with that feeling, as we all will if we're honest in our lives, of meaninglessness, of vanity, if God is really there, then all that means is that the vanity and meaninglessness is but smoke that is clouding our eyes. This is where Koholeth will take us. And his words, when we get to chapter 12, will end on this bedrock of the existence of God. God is there, and he will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's how the book ends. As we've been gearing up uh, over the past couple months for this series, I've wrestled honestly with uh, how to preach Ecclesiastes. Uh, specifically, how is it possible to recreate what Koholeth does in this book and not just automatically skip to the end? Koholeth wants us to join him, as it were, in the process of seeking out meaning so that we, like him, might come up empty in that quest, so that we, like him, might hit this bedrock of the existence of God. But even that bedrock, the, the moment of resolution that comes at the end of this book, is not neat and tidy. It's a place from which to build if you're brand new to faith. Or if your faith, if your desire to follow after God has become so convoluted and hijacked by life under the sun, it's a place from which to rebuild. Today, uh, we know and we see more than the original audience of Ecclesiastes could have ever hoped to. That all of the words of this book prepare us and point us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is one true preacher king who will come later. There is one true son of David who will come later. And we can't escape this reality because the center of our worship every time that we gather on a Sunday like this is to come to his table and to feast on him and to be sustained by his finished work on our behalf. We are not only invited to find God at the bedrock, we're invited to find hope and to find life in Jesus, in his life that has been offered up for our own, in the peace and in the reconciliation that that affords us in his making all things new, as we'll sing to conclude our service today, that he is restoring all things to the goodness with which God created them in the first place, that he is freeing it from the bondage and the futility, the madness of life under the sun. So Christ is the answer to the vanity. Christ is the answer to the meaninglessness. And a Christian pastor can't preach on any part of the Bible with integrity and leave that out 
pretend like that's not the conclusion. But here's what I'll also say to you. Don't rush to the conclusion. Don't rush to the conclusion. Imagine yourself to be among the original audience that didn't have that conclusion to rush to. Engage in the quest. Engage in the wrestling that Koholeth does. And sit in that for what will feel like to most of us an uncomfortably long period of time. Allow yourself to be brought to the point where you do begin to fear that life might actually be meaninglessness, meaningless. Because it's there, it's here in that place that all of the fluff of what we commonly call faith will burn away. And all that will be left will be the tested and purified and genuine article. 150 years ago, Charles Bridges wrote, a mercy indeed it is to be turned away from the empty shadow and to lay hold of the solid substance. So may God, in his mercy, use Ecclesiastes to expose the vanity, to expose the smoke of everything else that we might lay hold of the solid substance of himself. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we shy away from the honest wrestlings that the author of Ecclesiastes invites us into. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for thinking that we might be doing you a favor by not considering and questioning these deep things. Pray that you would give us, in your grace, the ability to truly engage in the quest of Koholeth in this book. That we would, whether through our own experience or vicariously experiencing what he experienced, that we would see or see again truly the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the void of everything else. That you would break down the assumptions and the faulty construction that we have built our life upon empty forms of godliness rather than the God who is there. And that when we reach the end of this book and we begin our celebration of Advent together, that what we would build upon and see Christ entering into truly is the powerful reality that you are God and you are there. Thank you that we get to look ahead to the conclusion even as we come to this table. So meet us by your spirit as we do that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.